0: I was, I was saying to, to our folks this morning, I was standing in the baptismal tank, and, and uh, of course, you always want to introduce a little bit when you do baptisms in the church. And, and I, I said, you know, I am overwhelmed this morning with gratitude and joy uh, because the, the, the big five events in the life of a church that you really have to get excited about if you love the people of God uh, w- would be the baptism of new converts, folks that have come to faith in Jesus Christ that's got to be the big one, right? The angels are celebrating in heaven. We join in. That's a big one. Uh, the birth of, of babies into Christian homes. You know, what a privilege that is. What a sign of God's grace and favor that is. Children are a blessing from the Lord, uh, right? And, and Christians are like the only people left in the universe who believe that. Uh, and, and so that's something to be excited about. That's something to, to celebrate. And then we talk about when our, when our young people marry other Christian young people. Isn't that a great thing? Uh, you know, as a, as a parent, don't you feel like spiking your Bible and moonwalking out of the church when that happens, it's like, yes, praise the Lord. Don't do that, by the way, don't spike the Bible. But do you know what I'm saying? It just feels so good when that happens. And then the death of the saints. When godly men and women walk with Jesus all their lives and finish well, don't you just wanna cheer for that? Isn't that a great thing? You know, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of the saints. And then, of course, the, the last one on the, on the big five there, would be when you have the chance to recognize and affirm your own young people as they stand up and and enter into into full-time Christian service. And that's just... So exciting. And so I was overwhelmed with joy and gratitude this morning because we got to do two of those things this morning. We baptized uh, some folks at the church this morning, some new believers, mixture of children and adult converts, which just gets me so fired up. And then this evening we have the opportunity to recognize two young men and to ordain them to Christian ministry. So I'm fired up, and uh, I hope that you're fired up for what God is doing in your church. Why don't we begin this morning or this afternoon with a word of prayer. Let's pray together our Heavenly Father, we're here for a lot of reasons. Uh, We're here because we're excited about what you're doing in this place. Uh, We're here because uh, we sense your call and your movement, your stirring in our hearts. Uh, We're here because we love each other. But most of all, we're here, Lord, because we are thankful for what you have done in Christ to secure our salvation. Lord, we're here because there's nowhere else we'd rather be. And we've understood. We have been helped to see the mercy of God and the person of Jesus Christ. We want to offer our lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as our reasonable service of worship. So take this time. uh, Receive our attention. Receive our delight. Receive our gratitude as an offer of praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is so good to be back with you. Uh, I was here a couple years ago and uh, really enjoyed being with you, enjoyed singing with you. Uh, in a lot of ways, this feels like home. And a part of that, I'm sure, is the architecture. This was actually the church I grew up in. Uh, I was sort of raised in a King Bible Church, the old church. Uh, and then when we moved here when I was a teenager... And I helped hammer in some boards on this stage. I'm not sure if they're still here because I know there was that fire. But uh, So some of it is the architecture. It makes me feel nostalgic. But then some of it is the feel of this church. Um, I have found over the course of my years in ministry that it's really hard to find people who love the truth and who welcome the Spirit. I, I've found like there are a lot of folks who welcome the Spirit but at the expense of truth. And then there are folks who, who love the truth but are are kind of cold and have lost their first love a little bit, and so you folks feel like home, and it is uh, very good to be here. I had originally p- planned to preach on a different passage, and uh, and then I was uh, engaged to speak this evening at the ordination service of our our two young men, and as I prepared that service, it just felt like God was saying to me, this is a better message for these folks at this Stage in their Christian journey, in their journey as a church. And so I asked Josh and Tim if they'd be open to a little bit of spiritual leading and and, uh, they were very kind and gracious to me. So the passage that I'd like to draw your attention to this afternoon comes from Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. It would be super helpful, I think, if you had your Bible open. Acts 20, 17 to 38. I saw it printed in the bulletin, so that'll be fine. I don't know whether it'll appear on the screen or not, but it's certainly printed in your bulletin. Uh, In this text, the Apostle Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem with the Jerusalem offering. And he's been warned along the way uh, that there will be persecutions and hardship, arrest. He'll be handed over, poorly treated when he comes to Jerusalem. And indeed, that is what happened. But it hasn't happened yet. And so Paul is very eager. When you know your time is short... You know, of course we know as we read the rest of the story that his arrest did not immediately lead to his execution. There was an extended period there where he wrote some wonderful letters and did other wonderful things. But in Paul's mind and in his spirit, he could feel the end for him coming. And, and so there was an eagerness in his spirit to encourage the churches as he made his way back to Jerusalem. And And one church in particular seems to be at the forefront of his concern. Paul has a special bond for these folks in Ephesus. He spent a great deal of time there. Uh, Paul was not often in one place for a long period of time. He would kind of preach for a little while until people got angry at him and there was a mob or something and then they'd stone him and he'd move to the next town. Uh, But in Ephesus, there was a reasonably warm and long welcome. And it was a strategic city, so he spent a great deal of time there. Had a very fruitful ministry And now he's concerned uh, for the future health of the church. So he arranges for a last meeting with the pastors and elders of the church. And this is the only address we have in Acts that is given specifically to pastors and elders. And so, again, it just seemed very appropriate for us to look at this afternoon. And so there, there is a sense in which I am preaching just to Josh this evening. There's also a sense in which I'm preaching to Tim as he begins to think about and reflect upon his ministry here, and then there is a sense in which I am preaching to you collectively because the Bible makes it very clear that you are responsible as a church for the type of pastoral ministry that you support and encourage in this place. So we'll all be listening a little bit differently as we go through the text together. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 17. and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things or sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the apostle Paul has no problem in pointing to himself as an example to be followed. Some of us are shy about doing that, but the apostle Paul certainly wasn't. He said for example to the Philippians, "Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us." Philippians 3:17. So Paul says, "Follow me and follow others like me." And so Paul here gathers together the elders, the shepherds, the flock in Ephesus, and he gives them counsel. He points to his own example. And from that, we can learn several things about what a good pastor looks like and what sort of pastor you, Josh, should aspire to be. A good pastor, then, the first thing we learn about a good pastor is that he serves the Lord with all humility. Every word of that sentence matters. A good pastor serves the Lord with humility. All humility. I take that from verse 19. Pastors sometimes need a little bit of help remembering who it is to whom they will ultimately give an account. The Apostle Paul had that thought foremost in his mind most of the time. He said to the Corinthians, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, With me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, right? I'm sure you have your opinion on my pastoral ministry, Paul says. I'm sure you think I do some things well. I'm sure you think I do other things poorly. I just need to tell you, I don't really care. Interesting thing to say to your people. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul says, it doesn't actually matter to me even a great deal what I think of my own ministry. Every pastor thinks he does some things well. And, And most pastors are aware of the things they don't do well. And every pastor needs to be reminded that at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter what you think you do well and it doesn't matter what you don't think you do well because everybody lies. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Meaning, someone talked about how, how the devil whispers into the ears of pastors. I think it was during the prayer time. Someone prayed for Josh that he wouldn't listen to what the devil whispers into his ear. Do you know who the worst judge of how well a pastor is doing? Do you know who the worst judge of that is? The pastor himself. The pastor himself. Sometimes the devil will pray on the pride lever and get you to think you're doing better than you're doing, because pride goes before the fall. But most often, more often than not, God will whisper, or the devil will whisper in your ear and just say, "Just so you know, that was the worst sermon ever." Right? We, it, you know, and and it doesn't matter what the facts are. You're always thinking that today we we had to do a fire drill at our church. Uh, we our insurance company mandates that that we uh, we have to do a fire drill because. There's some changes to the building, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so we did a fire drill. Fire drills aren't great for the movement of the spirit. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. And, uh, and, you know, we're, we're preaching through the Bible, and, and it just so happened I was preaching on a particularly hard topic. I didn't feel good about it in the sense of, you know, I didn't feel like this was one of those home-run uh, sermons where people are, you know, going to write you tearful emails after telling you how you changed their life and stuff. It was a pretty hard uh, sermon, and uh, we get to the end of it, and then I say, you know what, after the benediction, there's going to be a, a fire drill, and... Uh, and so fire drill happens and whoosh, everyone's out of the church. And even though I know why everyone left, and even though I know why no one said good sermon, pastor, still I'm driving home going, you know what? People couldn't wait to get out of the building today. <laughs> it's because you're a terrible pastor, right? And anyway, so Paul, and he knows all this is going on. And he just says, you know, I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to myself. But he says, but listen, but I'm not thereby acquitted Says in verse 4 there, it's the Lord who judges me. Here, here's what I'm saying. If a pastor is going to be any good at all to the church, he needs to understand that ultimately he reports to the Lord. You cannot serve the church well as a pleaser of men. You know, and I would say this to any young man if you go into the ministry because you like the strokes. You know, you like it when people say nice things to you. And boy, do they ever. I tell every young man that that I have any influence with, don't believe the things that people say to you at the door. You are not as good as the old ladies say you are, and you're not as bad as the cranky old men say you are. You know, the truth is somewhere in between, and, and you need to find that when you wrestle with the Lord. You can only help the church by serving the Lord with all humility. Now, of course, the last words there are important too, with all humility. It'd be tempting to hear that. Yes, you know, the pastor might think, well, yes, I'm accountable to the Lord. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. No, 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 of course not. No, the pastor has no right to be domineering. In fact, as a servant of the Lord, he is called to serve and sacrifice and lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus said that specifically. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, The great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus explicitly said that however we're doing leadership in the church, we're not doing it the way the world does it, which is bizarre because every leadership conference you go to, what do they bring in? They bring in an athlete, they bring in a politician, or they bring bring in a business leader to tell us, I suppose, how not to lead in the church, Jesus explicitly says, we're not doing it that way. We're going to do it differently. Our approach to authority is entirely different. We have authority in the church. Can't miss that. Hebrews 13, 7 says you've got to obey your leaders. There's authority in the church. But that authority must only be used to serve, help, edify, and protect the people of God. Good pastors serve the Lord by serving God's people with all humility. Secondly, we learn from Paul's example and counsel that a good pastor serves the people of God as part of a team. Look again there at verse 17, if you have your Bibles open. Luke, who's recording this encounter, writes, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, Sometimes there's an awful lot of theology in grammar. It's interesting that there was not an elder. There was not a pastor. There was a plurality of leaders exercising collective oversight of the church. And that certainly appears to be the pattern in the New Testament. In Acts 14.23, for example, we read, when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes it's interesting to, to read through your Bible with like a, a, an imaginary calendar beside you. You know, the, and just mark off. You know, the apostle Paul spent so-and-so months here. And, and trace out Paul's uh, missionary journeys. So he would begin at Antioch and then he would kind of sail over there and enter Asia Minor and go up and sort of the tail end of the trip might be Antioch of Pisidia and then they'd kind of, you'd notice them stop because you can't go from Antioch of Pisidia, you can't go by land down to Antioch in Syria and so they would actually just, it's kind of like you get to the end of the road and then you turn around and go back. And interestingly, they turn around and go back and it says they appointed elders in every town. So just work that out. Right, so he'd go to one town, he'd preach the gospel, get, I don't know, 20, 30 converts there and say, okay, well see you in a bit. And then he'd go to the next town, preach for however long, sometimes months, sometimes weeks, get a church going on there, go to the next, get to the end of the line, stop, turn around and go back and appoint elders in every city and run the math. Think, you know, how long have these people even been believers? And and so clearly, the Apostle Paul was highly motivated to see that every church had elders from among their own congregation. That's the pattern. Paul would build up a a church with preaching and evangelism until the church could produce a plurality of elders. And only at that point was the church, in Paul's opinion, self-sufficient. Again, you can hear something similar in Paul's counsel to Titus, Titus 1 he says this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order finish the job and what appoint elders in every town as I directed you so a good pastor is not a lone wolf he works and ministers as a part of a team now I don't I don't know you Josh as well as I know Tim but I do know that you do not have all of the gifts necessary to lead and care for this church. I know that because no pastor does. Therefore, I would say make it your goal to serve as part of a team, to serve alongside others. Learn to depend on those others. Discover your gifts and abilities, but also discover your blind spots and your weaknesses. And don't just listen to yourself. Listen to those around you. They'll see strengths that you don't see And of course, they'll see weaknesses that you don't see. Serve the church as part of a team. Thirdly, we learn from Paul's example and counsel that a good pastor preaches Jesus Christ from the whole counsel of God. Can't miss that. Paul says in verses 20 to 21, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He then says again in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So in these verses, Paul draws attention to the breadth of his teaching. He taught from the whole counsel of God. He did not have a hobby horse that he would ride and neither were there topics that he would avoid. He taught everything and anything from the whole counsel of God. I think this is terribly important. I run a preaching workshop with some young preachers. And one of the things that, you know, I say to them is that you should get into the habit of doing the majority, not all necessarily, but the vast majority of your preaching in a sort of verse by verse, section by section, uh, working your way through books of the Bible. For the simple reason that any pastor, who, any pastor who sits in a room and says, what are the 52 topics I want to preach on this year? Any pastor who does that is going to err on the side of his own preferences and concerns. What that's going to tell you is not necessarily what God thinks about everything. What you're going to learn after the year is what your pastor cares about, what your pastor's worried about, right? And you're also going to learn by default what he doesn't know anything about and what he doesn't want to talk about. And the reality is, the best way to protect your people from your own biases, from your own hobby horses, from your own fears, is to preach sequentially through books of the Bible. It also gives your people confidence that you're not just... You know, whipping a dead horse or beating on them, or 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 that you're not. You know, sometimes I worry that folks think that when I wrote this sermon, I had their picture on my desk, right? Uh, right. So you're you're preaching on sin, sins of the heart, and and uh, and you're you just. I have natural head stops when I preach, so I I'll preach like this and I'll kind of stop, and I don't know you, and I don't think you're a particularly bad sinner, but I'm looking at you right now, and then I'm going to go over here, and I don't know you either, but that's where my head stopping, and and so I will preach this way, and if the topic and my head movement seem to bring brothers under conviction, they they will, you know, they'll feel offended by that. Like you were very obviously preaching to me and everyone in my section knew it. And and I like to be able to say, brother, listen, I don't have your picture on my desk and I don't choose these topics based on what you posted on Facebook. It literally is just what's next. It's just what's next. And, 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 and Paul could say that, you know, I wasn't skipping stuff. I wasn't working a hobby horse. I wasn't beating up on anybody. I was teaching the whole counsel of God. I think you want to be able to say that as a pastor. You want to have breadth. But Paul also draws our attention to the focus of his teaching. Focus of his teaching, according to verse 21, was repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching should seek to move people out of their sins and into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Preaching is always about tearing down sin and building up Christ. That's what preaching is. This morning in my church, I mentioned we had a fire drill, and um, I mentioned I was preaching on something I didn't particularly want to preach on. We are we're working our way through the seven letters in the Book of Revelation, and uh, I just thought it it felt like time for a vision series in our church. I've been there for ten years and. And so lots of folks were saying, why don't, you know, some of the pastoral team were saying, hey, we'd love a a bit of a vision series. And I'll be honest with you, I just didn't have the appetite to stand up for several weeks in a row and to tell people my hopes and dreams. Like I'm kind of like the Apostle Paul in that sense where I don't even care what I think anymore. Like I'm just, I'm at that place where, yeah, I feel stuff and yeah, I'm worried about stuff and yeah, I'm excited about stuff, but I don't even care. So how in the world could you care? Uh, I want to just hear, what does Jesus want from us? How could we please the Lord this year? What are we doing that doesn't please Jesus? What could we do more of that he's in favor of? That's all I wanted to talk about. And so I thought, well, let's do these letters from the book of Revelation. Because there we hear. We hear what Jesus really affirms in a church. We hear what he doesn't like. And anyway, long and the short of it is, we're preaching sequentially through those. And this morning we happen to be on Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Which is, for my money, the hardest of those letters to preach in Canada. Uh, because, you know, basically the message of the letter to Pergamum is that you're you're too tolerant. You need to be more intolerant. And and in Canada, of course, we have turned tolerance into a national virtue. So to, in Canada, like if you don't know, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a regular churchgoer, but you just ask the average Canadian you meet in Tim Hortons, you know, what's Christianity about? What is it? What is it? Or or even what does it mean to be a good person? What are the 10 commandments of just general Canadian religiosity? You'd probably get a list that at the head of the list is, it would be tolerance and then probably recycling, right? Like those are the ultimate spiritual values of the average Canadian. And here I am, you know, going right for one. And it's an odd thing when you open your Bible and say, y'all, you folks are all too tolerant. And we need to start calling a spade a spade. And some people think they're Christians and they're not. Thus saith the Lord. Let's pray. And then fire alarm, right? And everyone out the door. Let me just put it this way. There's no way I would have preached that sermon unless I absolutely had to, because you can't skip it. Uh, You you can't preach six of the seven letters in Revelation, right? That's an obvious one. Your people are going to pick up on that, right? Uh, You can't skip it. And there's no way I would do a sermon on the need to be intolerant unless it was next. And, and, And so, again, there are sins in our cultural DNA that you need to press on. And that's what preaching is. Preaching is, is tearing down to build up. It's wounding in order to heal. And, and when you love your people, and I'll be honest with you, the longer I am a pastor, the more I love my people. I've been at my church now for 10 years. And I'll be honest with you, loving your people is a great help, but it's also a great hindrance. I found it much easier to be a flame-throwing pastor in my first year at that church than I do now. Like, when it looks like you're under conviction and I love you, man, I want to pull my punches. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that there needs to be this breadth where we go through all the word of God. We need to have this focus where we're, we really are touching on the sins of our people. And then we're really making an effort in every sermon to build up Christ. It's not a Christian sermon if you're not pushing on sin and building up Christ. And I would just say, Josh, in your preaching, discipline yourself to be both broad and focused. Learn to sing the gospel of Jesus Christ from every bar and note of scripture. Fourth thing we learn from Paul's example and counsel here is that a good pastor attends to his own spiritual growth tells the elders in verse 28 there, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. I think it's fair to say, if a pastor isn't leading himself, he cannot hope to lead other people. Pastor has to be disciplined. He has to attend to his own growth and sanctification. I have seen men lose their ministry because they are quickly outpaced by the growth of their disciples. You know, when the cart starts traveling faster than the horse, the horse needs to retire or get out of the way. And if you want to have a long and enduring ministry, you need to rigorously discipline yourself. You need to root out sin. You need to tame your tongue. You need to study the word. You need to grow your faith. You need to let your people see your progress. You need to be among the most obviously growing Christians in this church. Now this isn't about people pleasing because you could hear that and you could think, well, I don't want to people please. You talked about that already. This isn't about people pleasing. This is about setting an example. Apostle Paul told his young pastors to do that. He said to Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress If you aren't working hard, if you aren't constantly growing as a pastor, if you aren't mortifying the flesh, if you aren't growing up and going deeper, then how can you expect that of your people? Want to show them that you are a disciple. You want to let them see your progress and then you want to call on them with integrity to follow you as you follow Christ. Fifth thing we learn from Paul's example and counsel is that a good pastor shepherds the whole flock of God. He says that to the elders and pastors in verse 28 there. He says, "Pay pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now I've used in that heading there, in the fifth point there, I've used the word shepherd because that's actually the word that Paul uses there. It's unhelpfully translated in the ESV as care for. Uh, Actually, the word that's underneath care for is the Greek word poimeno, which literally means to pastor or to shepherd. By the way, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he talks to Peter in John 21. Remember that passage in John 21 where Jesus is restoring Peter to the ministry? He gives him three overlapping charges. He says, first, he says, you know, feed my lambs. And then he says, tend my sheep. And then he says, feed my sheep. Well, the, that middle one, tend, is this word here, poimano. It, it literally means to shepherd, to care for the flock. I think what Jesus is trying to tell Peter and what Paul is trying to tell these elders is simply this. There is more to being a pastor than just preaching. Like, hear here, here the balance of what Jesus says to Peter. He says two feeding things. He says three things. Two of them are about feeding. Two of them are about teaching and preaching. Right? Feed the little ones. So always be aware you got new believers in your church, you got young ones. Care for them, help them get up to speed. We use the terminology in our church. We talk about merge lanes. Always got to have merge lanes so that new people can get up to speed. But isn't there, is there anything worse than going to a church that's all merge lane? You know, I started in a church in ministry In my first couple of years in ministry, it was all merge lane. It was the same basic intro to the gospel sermon every Sunday. We never went deeper. Nobody ever felt edified or encouraged. We were just told this is for your friend that you didn't bring, by the way, right? And so it's always for the friend you didn't bring. And you, you just go home thinking, I have heard some version of this sermon now, 68 Sundays in a row. It's all merge lane. There needs to be highway and there needs to be merge lanes. So Jesus says that to Peter: Feed my little ones, feed my big ones. But then in the middle he says, Don't forget, pastor the flock. Lead the flock. There, there is more to being a pastor than just preaching. Now I want to be careful how I say that. I certainly don't want to oversay that. Good friend of mine and, and of Tim's as well, Paul Martin, uh, put something out on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that I wholeheartedly agree with. Uh, He said, your church will never be better than its preaching. I I think that's absolutely true. I want to affirm that. Uh, It's worth noticing, two-thirds of what Jesus said to Peter had to do with preaching and teaching. So that's important. Peter obviously got the message, right, in Acts 6. So it's important. And I will say this. I, I think that when I started in ministry in 1994, I don't think many pastors needed to be told that. I don't think we needed the message there's more to ministry than preaching because I actually entered the ministry at a time when preaching was being greatly diminished in the evangelical church. I entered the ministry in a a time when we were aiming for 55-minute services. I remember being told we should do 55-minute services because that's how long episodes of shows are on TV. That was the logic. And your sermon should be 25 minutes or less because that's how long a sitcom is minus the commercials. And, and, And so... I entered the ministry in in the season of sermonettes, right? These small, pithy, you know, talks that were really chicken soup for the Christian soul. So I I don't think the pastor needed to be told in 1994 that there's more to ministry than preaching because preaching was pretty low on the to-do list back then. You were supposed to be an expert on what color of carpet is most inviting to newcomers, but but you were not expected to spend 20 hours or 30 hours a week preparing your sermon. But here's the thing, now we're reacting to that. We have this reformed resurgence, right? And evangelicals are famous for their ability to move from ditch to ditch. And so now we've got a whole generation of young pastors coming up and they went into ministry because all they wanted to do is hide in their study and read Calvin for 30 hours a week and then shout at some people, right? And and so now we need this counsel. There's a generation of young men who need to be told, hey, there's more to this job than preaching. There's more to this job than preaching. I know that uh, Tim spent some time growing up and and living in in India, and it's been my privilege to uh, visit India half a dozen times, doing some teaching and whatnot. And I've always found that visiting India helps you understand the Bible, because there are still villages and places in India that haven't changed since Bible days. And it gives you an idea of you know first century agrarian culture. And one of the things you see all the time in India is large flocks of sheep being moved from place to place by shepherds. Always at the front of the flock, there's a shepherd who knows where the water is or who knows where the day's grazing is. In India, a lot of times, uh, because it's a rice uh, economy, the uh, farmers who own the rice fields after the harvest will allow shepherds to bring in the sheep to chew up the stubble. And so you'll see these huge flocks being moved, and you'll see a guy at the front of the flock on his cell phone. That's the part that doesn't belong in the first century, right? But he's got, a, he's got 500 sheep behind him, and he's talking on a cell phone. He's talking to a rice farmer about which of his fields he'd, he'd like munched and fertilized, uh, multitasking, right? And, uh, and so he's the guy at the front. He knows where we're going. He's aware of the opportunities. He has arranged resources for the benefit of the flock. That's part of shepherding too, right? That's an important part of the job. But then there's always another guy. Usually a young, It's usually a young boy, a young kid, at the back of the flock, and his job is to count the sheep, keep them out of traffic, It's a wonder that the, the roadways are not just littered in India with dead sheep because they're moving through traffic and weaving around buses and those giant trucks. So there's a guy at the back and he's usually got two long sticks. His job is to keep everybody together, keep the sheep out of traffic. Of course, your sheep don't eat very well if they get hit by a bus. So that's an important part of the job. And then every once in a while you see one of these shepherds at the back of the flock carrying a sheep as well. Sometimes it's a very old sheep. Sometimes it's a sick sheep. Sometimes it's a very young sheep. But that's part of the job too. In fact, God rebukes the bad shepherds in Israel in Ezekiel 34 for not doing this part of the job. He said in Ezekiel 34, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. You didn't do this back of the flock work. You were leading, you were feeding, but if anybody fell behind, they got left for the wolves. If anyone was sick, they were left to die on the side of the road. How many pastors have you experienced over the course of your life who were great preachers, great visionaries, not so great with the sick, the young, the new, the weak, it's more than just preaching, more than just talking on your cell phone, arranging resources. Also got to carry the young and the sick and the weak and find the strays and bring them home. A good shepherd, a good pastor, a good team of pastors is committed to this entire process. Sixth thing we learn from Paul here is that a good pastor warns, watches, and defends. If I could extend my India analogy a little bit, the bigger the flock, the more shepherds are attending the flock. Obviously, it makes sense. In a real large flock, you'll have a guy at the front with a cell phone, a guy at the back with the two sticks, and then you'll sometimes have a couple of burly fellows at the side. Sometimes they're walking all through the flock. I imagine that their job is to watch out for Predators. That's the analogy Paul uses, whether that's true in India or not. Obviously, it was true in whatever pastoral imageries Paul is familiar with. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Therefore, be alert. A good shepherd knows how to fight, right? God save us from passive and weak pastors, A good shepherd, of course, should be gentle with the sheep, but he better know how to fight with the wolves. David killed a bear and a lion, but we have far too many shepherds today in the church who lay down with wolves. They bring in destructive theology. They are too timid to confront. They are too weak to rebuke. This is a serious problem in Canada because we have made a, an idol of niceness and peace in this country, and it is the flock of God that has paid a terrible price. A real pastor, a good shepherd, does not run away from a fight. Now, of course, he doesn't run towards a fight. We don't want pastors who seek out contention, who are contentious by nature, who only preach on the parts of the Bible that set people's hair on fire. We don't want that, of course, but neither do we want cowards. When a fight comes, we want a shepherd who will stand his ground. Jesus said that. He said, I'm the good shepherd. Good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. There are wolves outside and there are wolves inside the church. A good pastor is able to spot them and he's willing to fight them. One of the measures of a pastor's love for his people is his willingness to fight for the flock. seventh thing we learn there from Paul is that a good pastor never takes advantage of the sheep. Paul speaks at great length about how when he was planting this church in Ephesus, he did it on his own dime. He says, and of course, as a church planter, that was Paul's normal pattern. You can't Expect to earn your living from people you're trying to plant a church among. It just doesn't work that way, obviously. And so Paul speaks about how he worked very hard. He was able to support himself and several other workers. But Paul's point here is not that pastors shouldn't get paid. In fact, he wrote back to this church. A little while later, he wrote back to an elder of this church, Timothy, and he said this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul said that elders who rule well should be well paid, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul was not opposed to paid ministry, and he himself accepted payment from other churches. He solicited funds from the church in Rome for a missionary venture into Spain. He's simply saying here that there is no room in the church for men who are financially motivated. There have always been people who look at the flock of God as an easy target. And you can understand that. Church tends to be filled with some of the nicest, most gracious, generous, and naive people on planet Earth. And there have always been people who look at that as an easy way to make a living. And Ezekiel 34, again, rebukes those sort of folks. God says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You expect the flock to feed you. It's your job to feed the flock. God rejects such shepherds. In fact, he says that he's out to get them goes on to say in the same chapter, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against those shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand, put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. If a pastor goes into the ministry to feed himself off the flock of God, then he will find himself dealing with God at the end. Pastors must not be greedy for gain. Paul says that again to Titus, another overseer. He says, for an overseer God God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So obviously a man's got to eat and he's got to take care of his family. Those who labor in gospel ministry should make their living from gospel ministry, but they must not take advantage of the sheep. Sheep will sometimes give more than they should. Pastors should know that. Pastor should watch out for that. Pastor should watch over himself because God is watching him. Then, lastly, the eighth thing we learn here from Paul in this passage is that a good pastor prays and weeps with his people. I love how this passage ends. Look at verse 36 there. It says, When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Paul loved these people. He lived with them. He prayed with them. He wept with them. This was his family, and he did not part with them easily. When I was just starting out in pastoral ministry, I don't remember who, but somebody told me that a pastor should not have friends among his congregation. Now, let me just say, I I hope I understand where this particular brother was going with that. Seen in the best possible light, I think what he meant was, a pastor should have friends with other pastors in other churches. And I would certainly echo that sentiment. But what I think he actually did mean is that you need to sort of be above the people you're trying to lead and that if you engage in friendships, if you really let people in, they will only make it harder for you to do what you have to do. I made a decision very early on to reject that advice entirely. I will tell you that it is harder to tell people you love hard things, but I'm not sure it's supposed to be easy to tell people hard things. I think that's why they call them hard things. People in my church are my friends. You know, it's, They're the people that I spend my personal time with. I have no idea. You know, Maybe Tim overestimates the amount of time I spend on work. I don't know because I don't know where to draw the line between personal time and church time. One of my best friends I play squash with multiple times a week is an elder in my church. It's probably the smartest thing I do to invest so heavily in an elder in my church, but I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm just doing it because he's my friend. We hang out. He, he and his wife and my wife and I, we go out for dinner, you know, when we've got some money and some time and, and a babysitter. We go out with them. We hang out with them. We, there's another couple in our church. They come over to our house every once in a while. We, we play games together. We just, just enjoy hanging out. All, all my friends, almost all of my friends are from the church. It's my family. They are my mother, my brother, and my sisters. And I believe that that is the only way to pastor. It's the way Jesus did it. Jesus, Jesus had friends. He said that. I call you my friends. He hung out with, he had a crowd, he had a congregation, he had a church, but he had 12 and he had three and he had one. He hung out. That's the way Jesus did it. It's the way Paul did it. You cannot lead people you do not love and live with. You have to weep when they weep. You have to bury them. You know, I have elders on my board and then I did funerals for their for their children. There is nothing that bonds you to another man more than weeping with him in his deepest pain and loss. You have to do that. You have to bury them and weep over their loved ones. You have to rejoice with them. You have to celebrate their births. You have to be there when their kids are born, when they graduate, when they get married, when they retire. You have to live with them if ever you would lead them. Now, Josh, I know that a lot of this probably feels new to you, but you've been well-trained You've been well trained. You know the scriptures and you've been given a good example. Bible says this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's very good advice. This is a well-worn path and this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you have been so gracious to us. Lord, you have given us everything we need for life, for salvation, for holiness, for meaningful service. Lord, you have given us, first of all, Jesus Christ, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He obeyed the law perfectly. He opened for us all the treasures and storehouses of heaven. And he paid for what we have done in his body on the cross. We are blessed. We could stop right there and sing your praises forever. But Lord, you've done more than that. The scriptures say that you've also given us gifts. And among the first gifts that are mentioned are leaders. You have given this church leaders. I want to thank you for that. Thank you for those who were involved in the foundation Thank you for those who will now build. Lord, we pray that this church would always be built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. We thank you for the stewards who have labored faithfully and who will continue to do so. Will you bless them? Will you keep them? Will you make your face to shine upon them and give them peace? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.